Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You're listening to the QuickBook Reviews podcast. Brighten your day with a book. Hello, my fellow bookworms. This is Philippa from QuickBook Reviews, author, interviews and book reviews. How? How are you all doing today? Well, I've got a lot of great books to get through, but I do have to tell you, you've caught me. I'm a little bit tired now. I had to be up at 5am this morning to get everything done before work started. And one of the things I had to do was meet a teacher of my son at 9am. And I just said to my son last night, oh, you know, does this teacher dress up? Because I'm planning on just wearing a hoodie. And he said, oh, no, she always looks so nice. Make up everything. So, oh, no, I'm going to I'm gonna have to do something. So I found myself sitting in the car park this morning at 8.30. I'd done the run. I'd done the dog walk. I'd done some work by that point. And I was sitting in the car park trying to apply some makeup as teachers walk past. You know, it's just it's not becoming. But I just when I saw the teacher, oh, my goodness, I was glad I had put some makeup on because, yeah, she she looked incredible. And then the head of year said um, they said, oh, the head of year would like to meet you afterwards. OK, here we go. What else has my son not done? And he, this chap goes by the name Doctor. And I, in my head, he was like about 70 with hairs growing out of his ears. It turned out he's young enough to be a child of mine. He's so young. I just felt mortified. Anyway. Oh, now you keep asking about the pantomime and how it's going. It's the day. The first performance is coming up soon. It's, gosh, the end of next week is the first performance. This is terrible. Um. We've had a very high quality of cake. We've had a lemon drizzle cake and an apple cake. And the, I had the apple one. It was like a gift from the gods. It was sensational. But I got to try on my costume, my fairy godmother costume. And people were laughing. And I was laughing because it's, it's so bad. Imagine if um, an ex-offender, so someone's come up, been in prison for, I don't know, at least 30 years and has come out and decided that what they need to do in life is be a children's entertainer dressing up as a fairy godmother. That's the sort of dress that it looks like. 
it's it's just so bad i was just laughing and it was supposed to be gold now it's pink so the gold eyeshadow that's been acquired isn't going to wear it just, oh i shall have tales to tell you next week because we'll have had the dress rehearsal by then so who knows anyway enough about me we we need to get on with these books because we've got not one not two but three authors joining us this week to tell us about their books and every single one of these five books are superb so what are the books what's going on we have got the garnet girls by georgina moore and georgina very kindly is going to join us to tell us all about this fabulous book then we've got how to kill men and get away with it by katie brent and kate is going to join us about her book then we've got the broken afternoon a crime book you may not have heard of it but you need to uh, by simon mason and simon's joining us and then we've got a bit of a dystopian edge we've got the forcing by paul e hardesty and then the last day by andrew hunter murray Interesting that both dystopian authors are using a middle name or a middle letter. But what's really exciting, bless you, we've got bookish calls in. This is very exciting. So we had Rob last week, who was the first one. This week, we've got four. We've got four amazing calls in. We've got calls from Claire, Debbie, Sue and David. So I'm just going to spread them through this episode. It's wonderful. Oh, and I should say, if you're wondering how do I call in, you can go to the show notes of this episode, which will have the link, or you just go to www speakpipe.com forward slash QBR, QBR for QuickBook Reviews, and you record uh, up to 90 seconds of a message. You can tell me what you're reading at the moment, what you've recently enjoyed, of course, what biscuit you prefer, and just have a lovely time. And it's just so exciting because this podcast is all about reading. It's all about you. So do click on that link. You'd be so welcome. And I just hope we get more calls in again next week. So first of all, we're going to go to Claire to hear what she's been reading. Hi, Philippa. It's Claire here. I decided as Rob had braved it, I would also give it a go. Also, I finished The One Who Got Away this weekend and I absolutely loved it. It reminded me a lot of One Day by David Nichols. It's been quite a while since the book has touched me like that. Charlotte Rickson also writes under Charlotte Duckworth, doesn't she? Kind of psychological thrillers. So this is quite a, a difference, but I thought it was a lovely book. Favourite biscuit? I don't want to get told off. Um, at the moment, I would say McRitie's Double Chocolate Digestives. Worth a look if you haven't already tried that one. Love the podcast, as you know, and speak to you soon. Amazing. Thank you so much, Claire. That's brilliant. So there we are. Anyway, let's get started straight away. The Garnet Girls, Georgina Moore. What's it about? Let me tell you. Here's the blurb. Margot and Richard's love affair was the stuff legends are made of. Forbidden, passionate, all-encompassing, but ultimately doomed. When Richard walked out, Margot shut herself away from the world, leaving her three daughters, Rachel, Imogen and Sasha, to run wild. Having finally put the past behind her, charismatic Margot holds court in her cottage on the Isle of Wight, refusing to ever speak of Richard, but her silence is keeping each of the Garnet girls from finding true happiness. The eldest, Rachel, is desperate to return to London, but is held hostage by responsibility for Sandcove, their beloved but crumbling family home. Imogen, the dreamy middle child, feels the pressure to marry her kind, considerate fiancé, even when her life is taking an unexpected turn. 
and wild, passionate Sasha, the baby trapped between her increasingly alienated family and her controlling husband, has unearthed a secret behind Richard's departure. And when she reveals it, the effects are devastating. Let's do the first sentence, shall we? I'm going to do the prologue. There we go. Here we are. Margot let the heavy door slam behind her, her hand lingering on the cold brass of the doorknob. She felt the heat envelop her, the air thick and still with it, no sea breeze to bring relief. There was even a heat haze over the sea, blurring the horizon. Sasha's small sticky hand slipped out of hers and she was off, taking Sanko's steep steps with hops and jumps. Da! she kept calling. She was chasing her father. She was always chasing her father. This is a wonderful book. It's so evocative. It really makes you think about the relationship of sort of siblings and parents and how your past determines your future and all those sorts of things. I thought it was exquisitely written, gripping story. Yes, it had the twists and turns, but it, uh, when push comes to shove, it's about these people and and these siblings, three sisters and all that they deal with. Excellent. Anyway, enough about me. Let's talk to Georgina now. It is my absolute pleasure to welcome Georgina Moore, author of The Garnet Girls. Georgina, welcome. Philippa, so exciting to be on Quick Book Reviews. I'm a big fan. Thank you for having me. Well, really excited to have you on and for people to hear more about this book. I know you've got the rain in the background, but that's just typical British <laughs> weather. Betsy, she's my canal boat. And she's very cosy and lovely. I've got my desk. I've got a nice view right now of the weir. The river's very high. But yes, I'm sorry. I apologise to anyone listening. You might get some rain and some wind. And some... I think it's quite nice. I think it's, it's <laughs> Yeah, just quite... imagine. I do feel quite cosy and snug in here. With yeah. The... yeah. <laughs> yes, I've got a cup of tea. All is well. Anyway, yeah. let's start with the basics. Can you tell us a little bit about this book? I can indeed. So The Garnet Girls is my first novel. I wrote it in lockdown. My job is a book publicist. So I am lucky enough to look after Maggie O'Farrell uh, and many other great authors. It's been a fantastic career. I've loved every minute of it. And I do their PR and their events and so on. And of course, a lot of that was curtailed by lockdown. You know, we didn't, you weren't popping into BBC Broadcasting House with an author or taking them to a bookshop for an event. Uh, in fact, the whole social side of launch parties and events and festivals sort of dropped out of my life, like it did, I'm sure, for a lot of people. But it's quite a big element of the job that I do. I think I realised that if I was ever going to have this idea for a family, I'd always wanted to write about mothers and daughters. I find that relationship fascinating and also siblings and the role you play in a family and how you get stuck in that role even when you grow up and you think you've formed a whole new identity in your family your identity remains the same and it's very frustrating so I'd had this idea I'm very in love with the Isle of Wight we have a houseboat there that we use as a holiday as a holiday rental we rent it out but we go when we can and I had been there and I had seen this incredible sort of crumbling house on a beach and I suddenly came to me that I wanted to write about a family that sort of was living in this house. And maybe, you know, that that idea also of inheritance, that sometimes inheritance, of course, it's a massive privilege, blessing. We all know that a lot of people don't get any inheritance, but sometimes it can be a curse. 
um, because you can be stuck with stuff and you don't know what to do, but the emotional ties make you feel you should hold on to it. So anyway, so I was had this idea, and I think in lockdown I just thought, if I don't do it now, when am I going to do it? Because I, a big part of my job had gone. Uh, we were all working at home. And I started to get up at five in the morning and write. And it was my time before the children were up, before online school started, and I was escaping to the island that I loved and that I couldn't go to because we couldn't go to the Isle of Wight. And so that's how it came about, Philippa. And what I loved about the book, instead of you sort of ramming different emotions through the pages at me, you put the characters first and through the characters then came these emotions. And I, I felt you were very sort of gentle with us while giving us really interesting stories and emotions to deal with. Oh, that that's really lovely um, to hear that. Well, of course, when you're writing, when you're writing your first novel, you sort of you, p- people tell you what you've managed to achieve, and it's so great because you, you know, you don't know in a way. You're you're sort of writing, you know, for the first time. I think that someone else said to me that it's as much the Garnet Girls is as much as about what is on the page as is what's not on the page, which I think also is a good good way of looking at it. Yes, I read widely, but. What I really love is a character-driven book, just personally. I know lots of people, you know, much prefer complex plots, but I really love a character-driven novel. And I love the idea of... I didn't see why, commercially speaking, to write a commercial novel, I think I love that sense of place and escapism into a sense of place. And who doesn't love a book on a beach? I, you know, I'm just... I love a book on a beach. But but I didn't think that that necessarily had to go hand in hand with sentimentalism in terms of the characters. So mm-hmm. hopefully what you find in The Garnet Girls is that it is escapist, but it's not sentimental. And that there is some hard-hitting issues in there to do mm-hmm. with family and what's happened in the past. And what I really wanted to do was give each character a narrative arc. And I was interested whether those characters stayed with you after you'd finished writing if they're still there in your yeah, head they really are talking um, away and funnily enough just as I'm talking to you they're very they're, I can feel them very much coming coming back to me my a few people have said or oh, will you will you revisit them a couple of people have asked for uh said oh I'd love a prequel mm. about Margot and Richard which I think is really really interesting so you, you never say never what you know if it if people really love the Garnet Girls and and the early signs are good that they do, then, you know, we, we might revisit him one day in the future. Did the story change as you were writing it? Oh, definitely. And the editing process was so important. My partner is a psychotherapist and he doesn't really, Philippa, read a lot of commercial fiction. He was my first reader and I was very scared to give it to him because he doesn't overpraise and he's... You know, I knew he would be a tough critic, but he did get to the end of it and say, I think you've got something here with this family, but you need to do a lot more work pulling out, you know, how the past has affected them. And of course, his insights as a psychotherapist were brilliantly helpful. I think it's really hard when you do siblings. I really wanted to get that idea that they are a three, even though they fight it, Rachel, Imogen and Sasha, they are a three. 
and they fight it, but they are going to have things that bind them and, and that are similar in them. But you also want to make sure that when you're hearing their voices, they're unique. Otherwise, people get confused, don't they? People, when you jump around with different narrative voices. So that was all had to be worked on quite quite hard. But I really love the editing process, and I'm excited to go do it again on my on my second book. Oh, so I was going to say, is there another book in, in the writing? How far on? So I've just given my editor a first draft of the next book. They always say that's a good thing to do, to finish your second book before your first one sort of hits the shelves. I've had to do a lot of stuff with the Garnet Girls, which has all been exciting and an honour to to have those opportunities. I realise it's, you know, a privilege. But yes, I just sort of feel that when it all hots up with the Garnet Girls, it would be good to know that there's sort of a draft done. And I think it's really interesting. The book did make me focus on how we're always living in the now and what we're dealing with today. And yet who you are is is because of what's happened in the past. And you need to understand that to to be able to deal better with today. Yes, I mean, I think that's what it's essentially, in its essence, really about, is about the past. And particularly the mistakes of the parents. I think that, in essence, Margot doesn't talk about Richard and what's happened. You know, I remember someone telling me, I mean, we've got we've got two kids and um, we've been through some stuff, and I remember someone saying to me, don't, you know, be as honest as you can within the bounds of appropriateness for their age and so on and talk about things as much as you can because children's imaginations will fill gaps if they're silent. And so I really wanted to explore that because I think that's very true. I think if we don't speak about things with our children... We don't know what they're imagining. And yet, as a, a parent, you're not setting out to deliberately mess up your children's lives. You're doing the best that you that you think is the right thing at that time. And yet, on reflection, yeah, you know, you're then creating these issues. It's really interesting. I think you're right, Philip. I think she's just trying to do the best. I really wanted to show an older female protagonist who's still learning, who's still changing. Because Margot's age, she's about to turn 60, and that brings with it all different challenges of her not wanting to feel old. She doesn't feel old in spirit, and she's living, and she's learning. And I think, you know, I always imagine when when I grew up, this idea of being a grown-up, that you suddenly knew everything. <laughs> and then all I find is that nothing about me has changed at all, really. Yes, I've got some wisdom I've picked up on the way, but... I'm not a different person. I was interested, though, with your um, work that you do, was there one thing that you've seen other authors do that you were keen to avoid? I think the most important thing is to work as part of a team with your publisher, with your publishing team and your agent. To not always say, what are they going to do for me? You know, to, to, to not put the, the onus of expectation on them but how we can all work together to make the book a success. Because having worked in publishing for a long time and run a PR team, the pressure of work and the pressure of the number of titles that you have to look after is a lot. And very often you find in publishing that publishers bring more and more editors in, new imprints, new editors. But in essence, the marketing and PR departments stay the same size. Mm -hmm. That means that the priorities are have to, have to become much slimmer. So there'll be a huge wedge of publishing, but what actually is being focused on in terms of PR and marketing is very, very small. And that means a lot of disappointed mm -hmm. authors. And it's harsh. It's really harsh. 
I think blaming your team or expecting them to do everything is just not going to work. It doesn't work within the structure of how publishing is now and the pressures of it. So I think what, what I've tried to do from the beginning is say, I can help with this, I can do this, I can, you know, and, and, get, a, and get a sense of team around it, around the publication, and avoid those... <laughs> passive aggressive messages that I, I remember receiving that you get sometimes of oh I don't seem to be in it you know my my approach is a little bit more direct and kind of oh well we didn't get in that but let's try and get in this kind of approach I hope and that's the only reason I say that is because I've learned I've learned from being the other side having said that Philippa they're probably all talking about, about me and saying I'm a total nightmare <laughs> I do not think so. So did you get into publishing because you always wanted to be a writer and it's just taken you a few months to... uh, A few months, love it. ...to get round to it? I went to... I did... I went after... I did... it, It was always English. It was always writing. It was always... And my father was a publisher. He had a small academic publishing house that he ran everything. He wrote the copy. He took me as a child to London Book Fair. He did his own selling. So I saw him doing all that and I found it fascinating. I was a massive reading nerd. I mean, you know, I look at my children, how much time they spend on screens. Uh, and I just think, gosh, because I, I, I was just reading all that time. We, we, that's just what I did for, for entertainment. I read and read and read and read. So that was always a big thing for me. And then I did my English degree. And I remember my boyfriend at the time, I was writing these ridiculous letters, Philippa, saying, please make me an editor. <laughs> because I think when you finish a degree, you're feeling quite academic, aren't you? And and, and, and I, I love study. I mean, I'm, I I love reading. I loved my degree. I love, but you're in that kind of world and you want to keep going. And I thought editing sounded like it was the thing that was right. And um, my boyfriend at the time said to me, why do you, you know, while this is not happening, why don't you go and work in a bookshop? And so I did. I went and worked at a bookshop, which I absolutely loved. It's one of the highlights of my life and I was very very good on classical literature but really good on the Victorians but um my father sort of didn't really believe that anything existed beyond D.H. Lawrence and so my my reading education had been affected by that and I went to work in this bookshop and all the young you know all the 20s were like what do you mean you haven't read on the road what do you mean what about Irvin Welsh what about you know it it was an exciting time and so my world just opened up in reading terms and I began to read everything. And they all teased me because then if a customer came to the till and said, does anyone know who wrote The Vicar of Wakefield? They would all look at me and I like, oh, yeah. It would, but it was a great time. And it was a time when, you know, basically booksellers were wooed by publishers. I mean, we called it the canopy diet. We were out almost every night, uh, you know, at events. And I remember going to the Groucho Club for an event Orion did with Ben Oakry, an amazing array of authors, and took away goodie bags full of proofs, and it was exciting. And I kind of knew then that that's what I wanted. And then people came into the bookshop. Uh, This was what was then, it's now Waterstones Chiswick, which I'm doing an event with, which I'm very excited, but it used to be a Dylan's. And people would come in and do launch parties or events with authors or even Where's Wally costumes. And and I said to someone one day, I said, so who, you know, who does all that? Who does that side of things? And they said, oh, well, that's publicity. Um, It was like a light bulb had come on. I was like, 
well, that's what I'm going to do. Because, you know, the truth was, I am, a, I, I do love the social side. I love meeting people. I, that's, you know, and to do that in books, the two just seemed like the most perfect combination of anything I'd ever dreamed of. But I was particularly friendly with a rep who, Fiona, who was the rep then for Hodder and Stoughton. And I said to her, I really want, and she said, and then one day she came and she said, oh, they're looking for a publicity assistant. And I've recommended you. Uh, and that was it. I got the job and I just kind of moved moved my way up. And I knew, I mean, I knew it was the job for me. And, uh, and so that is why, sorry, very long-winded answer, why the writing, I mean, a job like publicity, and particularly when you're um, running a, a team, and mm, mm, you don't have a lot of spare time for writing um and so it's just sort of I was having such a good time and I loved my I was loving it that you know I didn't really think too much about it until until that lockdown came and and also just worth saying as well Philippa that a lot of publishing a lot of what I saw put me off of course as well I think there was that mm. I think I saw how hard you had to work mm. and I saw how hard I had to work to I mean one of my favorite things became when I started, I really enjoyed all the celebrity. I was doing a lot of celebrity authors and I looked after Hillary Clinton when she came over and Laura McCall and did a lot of big sports. I loved all that. That's how I sort of started really at Headline when I was uh, the publicity director there. But as I came to know that part of my job and get better at my job, what I really loved was the challenge of setting up a great debut novel. Uh, a big word of mouth novel mm. and really trying to get mm. it to land and get everyone talking about it because that's probably the your biggest challenge ever as a book publicist so I guess I knew how hard it was and how much has to be done I spent a lot of time with authors a lot of authors are friends and I see what they have to do and I think probably a bit of that put me off well, I'm glad it didn't, because otherwise, where would we be? It's just been such a pleasure to talk to you and hear more about the background of the Garnet Girls and also that you're still writing, which is wonderful. So, Georgina Moore, thank you so very much. Thank you, Philippa. I love chatting to you. Now we need to go to our next bookish call. And this is from Debbie, who's calling in to tell us what she's been reading. Hello everyone, this is Debbie calling in. Um, just to say that my book of choice at the moment is Rebecca Sculpt and it's called The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. It's a true story, a real sad one actually. Look it up, it's incredible. The writing is so good. And my favourite biscuit of choice, there's many. I don't know how I meant to choose one, but I suppose if I was made to by Philippa, I would choose a custard cream. Okay, take care everyone. Bye-bye. Wonderful, Debbie. Thank you. Right, well, we need to press on. We've got another two author interviews and another two book reviews. So the next book is called How to Kill Men and Get Away With It by Katie Brent. Let me read you the blurb on this one. Have you ever walked home at night, keys in hand, ready to throw a punch in self-defence? That's how it all started. The killing spree, I mean. I sort of tripped into this role literally the first one was following me that guy from the nightclub who wouldn't leave me alone I pushed him he stumbled and fell onto his own broken wine bottle oops it was such a waste of good house white but now I can't seem to stop and nor do I want to I've got a taste for revenge and quite frankly I'm killing it <laughs> there we go 
Let's do the first sentence of this book. Prologue. An apartment, Belgravia, London, now. Before all this started, I'd thought that squeezing the life out of someone would be easy. The right amount of pressure on their windpipe and they'd just go limp, like when a kitten suddenly falls asleep. It's actually nothing like that. This is a book that you, you know, you can't just take as the title. There is a real significance to why the character is doing what she's doing and what happens and the journey. It's um, it's a real it's a fun read. That's a terrible thing to say. But it deals with these really serious subjects of why she feels certain men need to to be removed from society. It is not about men in general. It is about a few nasty 'er ne'er-do-wells. And it's just written in such a pithy... You know, you find yourself laughing at something that's really quite awful. And I think if you just want a book that offers you something different from other books that you might have read recently and crikey what a balance against the garnet girls read the garnet girls and then read how to kill men and get away with it uh an interesting combination anyway let's talk to katie now well i cannot tell you how much of a pleasure it is to have on today katie brent whose book is how to kill men and get away with it Katie, welcome to the podcast. Hello, thank you so much for having me. I'm sorry, I've I've got a cold today, so I'm going to be sniffing my way through this, so hopefully it's not too annoying. Poor you. (laughs) This is your dedication, though, to the podcast, Katie, that you are still here. Okay, let's start with the basics. Can you tell us a little bit about this book? Yes, so the book is How to Kill Men and Get Away With It, a novel. Apparently is being put on the the US cover, just in case anyone gets it confused with an actual how-to. Guide <laughs> because it is very much it's it's not a serious book it's there are some serious topics in it very serious topics but it's obviously not me writing about how to kill men and get away with it it's hard to describe really because it, it's it sort of straddles quite a few genres it's a dark comedy it's a thriller it's a bit of a rom-com but I think the overriding point of it is that it is a social commentary on violence against women and girls in society and what the book is trying to do albeit in a tongue-in-cheek kind of way is to to flip the scales on what the world is actually like obviously in society there are a huge amount of men who kill women and get away with it so it's kind of flipping the script on that really so it's about kitty collins who is an instagram influencer of course she's also an heiress to a very glamorous meat production business inherited by her her father but she sort of turns her back on that and she's vegan and a serial killer, as it turns out. <laughs> and it's not just a book, I would say, for women to read. It, it's for everyone. It, it, it is this uh, often hilarious at its awfulness romp of a book. It's one I just inhaled. <laughs> it, you know, you don't want to give any spoilers, but uh, wow, the, the book packs a punch. It does it? pack several punches. Um <laughs> And then some more, I think. But um, yeah, I mean, I think it, it, it's 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 definitely one for every well, everyone over probably eighteen, I would say. <laughs> yes, it's not one for read with mother. It's not, 
<laughs> definitely not. Definitely not. Yeah, it's quite gruesome in, in parts, but um, because it is a, a comedy, it, the murders are so ridiculous. They're almost camp in a way, which I thought was important to do. Talking to somebody else about this quite recently, and, and we talked about the comedy element of the book and it is and how important that is, because if you take that out, it would just be a very, very grim story about you know some very very grim happenings mm. so it's almost i think the campness the over the topness of the murders sort of just brings it back from being you know what would be a very depressing read i think and it's that sort of balance of humor and horror not horror horror but you know a, a horrible story mm. did you have to work hard to get that balance right yeah, I, I I don't know about that one actually. I, I, it came quite to, to be able to do it like that came quite easily, but to the point where it's like I had to ask several like sort of early readers, you know, is this too flippant almost? Because there are some really heavy topics that are touched on, and it's you know you don't want to kind of undermine the seriousness of those issues by sort of making it a light-hearted romp, which it isn't. So, I mean, I hope it works, and most of the the feedback that I've had so far has sort of said that, that it balances quite well oh, so. yeah I'm interested though how did you get the idea for this book what was what was going on in your life Katie <laughs> when the idea came for this <laughs> well no um, it first started it's sort of like there were li- little sort of sprigs of of how it came about uh, probably going to be strung up for this but I'm not a Sex and the City fan <gasps> Dear. Um, End call. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and I don't really know why. There's not anything I can specifically put my finger on about it. I just don't really like it, just simply. I kind of had this idea. I mean, obviously, I'd watched it and like seen my friends go like completely gaga. But I had this idea of like sort of, you know, instead of just sitting around maybe complaining about the terrible men in their lives you know they just killed them <laughs> so <laughs> I'd, I'd started doing a um online Faber academy course around this time and when I applied for that my elevator pitch was a stabby sex in the city and that was sort of the original idea 2018 was also around that obviously killing eve was massive and I just wanted to write this strong female character who was just sort of pushing back against the men in her friend's life. So it, it, it was actually supposed to be much more lighthearted than it, it turned out. I wanted it to be almost like um, like a Buffy the Vampire Slayer. But then I sort of thought, you know, for the reader to, I guess, fully empathise with her, to make the men in the book, the ones that she kills, just horrible and they are and that sort of took it on a a, a sort of darker course did you find the Faber course helpful yes I did it was really good I did the writing a novel course which is um it gets you to do the first 15,000 words for me that was it, it was really good um and actually having the workshopping sessions they've got some wonderful authors who are um mentors and tutors as well who will go through your work with you, make suggestions, and it really gets you to sit down and do that because, you know, as everyone who's ever tried to write anything 
looking at that blank document <laughs> even if like I mean I will often not be like sort of awake until three or four in the morning with all these ideas sort of zipping around in my head but then it comes down to putting something on the page and I'm just like uh. <laughs> <laughs> so um it helps you to actually get that work done and get feedback from other writers I did two online courses with Faber in the end I still have two sort of chat groups of different writers who I still bounce ideas off of and we still you know four years later we still speak completely recommend it it was a really good experience is it best to do those though when you've got an idea you need that seed yeah you have to have an idea as part of the process of application so yeah but they help you develop it and stuff as well so it's just that you do need that little nugget of an idea Mm. did you always know how this book would end or did it surprise you as you wrote it (laughs) oh no I didn't know it was going to end some like completely how most people when they read it think it will end was how it was going to end but then um god it's really hard to talk about the end without ruining it um yes don't no spoilers but I think it just sort of organically took the route that it did I was like can I do that is that okay and I asked sort of had a few people read it and they were like no no do that that's brilliant that's um packs a punch yeah with all this writing I mean you do writing as your job with your journalism but when it came to writing a book did it feel different I'm interested what writing means to you very different writing a book to, to doing journalism I've wanted to write a novel since I was a child I mean I I've, was one of those kids who was always like trying to make people read <laughs> like my school friends and they were just like oh what's wrong with you what do you want to read for come outside and I'd be like no read this book it's so good and like I remember when I was um how old must have been maybe about eight, I sort of put together like a book club in our school in a reading room where we would go and read books. I'd always wanted to do it. It is difficult to find the time. I mean, it is such a huge undertaking. And, you know, I had a career, had two small children. I'd started doing the the online course when the kids were at school. And then um, we obviously had the lockdown. So it just gave me that time and something to focus on other than, you know, everything that was going on on around. But, I mean, it was definitely escapism um, at that point. We come to what is possibly the most important question we ask authors on this podcast. So prepare yourself for this, Katie. (laughs) What is your biscuit of choice? What biscuit is powering the writing of this book? Those those little biscotti that you get in the hairdresser. Oh, yes. I love them. I seem to (laughs) gather those in my handbag, so I'll I'll post a batch to you, Katie. Oh, thank you. Yeah, no, I love them. They are wonderful. And they're great because coffee, tea water they go with everything they remind me a little bit of luxury as well because it's almost like they remind me of having my hair done so yes I like that Katie I hope you feel better soon I just can't wait to hear everyone talking about this splendid book called how to kill men and get away with it Katie Brent thank you so much for your time thank you for having me it's been lovely coming up one more author interview and two extra book reviews Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Next bookish call is from Sue, and she's going to tell us what book is on her mind. Hi, Philippa, and all you lovely bookish people. Sue here. Like Rob, I have more than one book on the go. I'm currently reading M.W. Craven, The Puppet Show. Oh, my God, why have I not read this before? I'm also dipping in and out of Warrior Queens and Quiet Revolutionaries by Kate Moss. It's a book, really, you can go in and out. You don't need to read it all at once. And I'm listening to The Quantum Creators and the Fabergé Egg. Think St Mary's Chronicles by Jodie Taylor, but not quite as good. But that just might be the narrators. My biscuit of choice, if I, I don't really eat them, I prefer Jaffa cakes. Is it a biscuit or a cake? I'm not quite sure. I'll leave that to you. I hope you all have a fabulous week. Take care. Bye. Oh, wasn't that great? Oh, this is just so exciting. Right, now we're on to a crime book. And when I read this book, I just had to get Simon on because I haven't heard that much about it. And yet it's a cracking crime book. You will have heard me review the first one in the series last year, A Killing in November. And this second one, The Broken Afternoon by Simon Mason, is just... It's what I want in a crime book. Again, it's different, but it's got characters I really like. And yeah, it's just really interesting. Let me do the blurb on this one. A four-year-old girl goes missing in plain sight outside her nursery in Oxford, a middle-class affluent area, her mother only a stone's throw away. Ryan Wilkins, one of the youngest ever detective inspectors in the Thames Valley Force, dishonourably discharged three months ago, watches his former partner, D.I. Ray Wilkins, deliver a press conference 
confirming a lead. Ray begins to delve deeper, unearthing an underground network of criminal forces in the local area. But while Ray's investigation stalls, Ryan brings his unique talents to unofficial and quite illegal inquiries, which will bring him into a confrontation with the very officials who have thrown him out of the force. Let's do the first sentence. Chapter one. Poppy Clark, four years old, standing in the sun-dazzled gateway of magpies, giggling. Deep in the heart of rich Oxford, Garford Road glowed in the heat, a moneyed hush of rustling copper beach, murmuring voices of girls from the private schools, muted conversations of construction workers at the Edwardian villas under renovation, and Poppy's laughter ringing out bright as summer birdsong as she danced on the spangles of sunshine on the gravel driveway of her nursery school, waiting for her mother at 4.30 on a July afternoon. Honestly, if you like crime books, you need to be reading these. You don't have to have read the first one, I don't think, but you can, you know, they're, they're a joy to read. I definitely can't wait to read the next one. Um, and I think you would enjoy reading these too. So we need to go and talk to Simon now. Well, it is my absolute pleasure to welcome Simon Mason, whose latest fabulous book is The Broken Afternoon. Simon, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I have to say you've come on at very short notice, so I do appreciate it. But I'm very excited to talk to you about this book. Right. So let's start with the real basics. Can you tell us a, a bit of a summary about this particular book? So it's the second in a crime series following on from the first, A Killing in November, and features the same two detectives, both of whom coincidentally have the same surname, but they're in no way related. One is Ryan Wilkins. He's what the Americans would call poor white trash or what we might call a chav he's from he's poor he's white he's from a disadvantaged background he's had a terrible upbringing but he happens to be really bright and he's turned his life around and he's become a detective and he's paired with ray wilkins who's london nigerian heritage privately educated balliol college oxford double first ppe boxing blue handsome natty dresser and so they are an odd couple and uh, their job is not to get on and they don't get on and uh, they are required in the oxford constabulary to investigate various crimes and this book the the broken afternoon begins as i say after the end of a killing in november at which point ryan who's rather badly behaved had been discharged from the police force so this new book opens with him as a a night security watchman in a, a van rental place uh, on an industrial estate in Oxford. And Ray is on national TV leading an investigation into the abduction of a small girl from outside a very exclusive nursery in uh, the most expensive part of Oxford. So they begin very separately, but in the course of the story, uh, they come together. And I think it's fair to say, we don't want to give any spoilers, but from the first book, Ryan... Yes, he did wrong, but he didn't do wrong for doing wrong sake. You know, he's a good guy. He's just misunderstood in a way. Well, I'm glad you say that. I mean, some readers have said, you know, oh, he's very, very badly behaved. And I, I, he is sort of badly behaved, but I wonder if it's an issue of bad behaviour or whether it's an issue of bad manners. He doesn't have middle-class manners. And in, in the first book, you know, one of the first scenes... By mistake, he's sent to a very snooty Oxford College, Barnabas Hall, and he has to 
he has to question the famously pompous provost of Barnabas Hall, and he, he kicks off. And I, I think it's not bad behaviour so much as bad manners. And there's something about an English middle-class reader who will read that scene and go, oh, no, make it stop. This is wrong. You shouldn't behave like that. <laughs> um, but as you point out, his, his heart, I think, is in the right place. He's a very good detective for all the right reasons. He's not a bent copper. He's not unduly violent. He just can't stop shooting his mouth off, basically. And yet, if I would want a policeman looking after me if something had happened to me, Ryan is the one. I would choose him because he's passionate and, and when he's dedicated to solving something, there's, he won't let go of it. Yeah, he feels, he feels injustice very strongly. His background is really terrible. His father was a violent alcoholic. His girlfriend died of a drug overdose. So he's, he's really had some hard knocks. But instead of embittering him... I think it's made him more empathetic in a way. So although he's got all these bad manners, he's actually pretty sensitive to, to what's going on with, with other people. One of the key relationships in the book, he has a, a three-year-old son, also called Ryan, and he just completely dotes on him. He's, you might see him in the street, Ryan wearing his baggy trackies and his loop jacket and his bling, and think, Oh, he's probably a terrible father, but he's not. He's the opposite of that. He's a really good father. And for me, your books draw me in from the beginning, and yet they are different to some of the other crime books. And maybe it's driven by these two characters who are quite opposite from the usual Oxford Morse <laughs> crimes that we uh, we might expect. Did you set out to make it different, or is, are the books just a reflection of you and your writing? I think the difference is entirely driven by my astonishing ignorance of um, of other crime novels, to be quite honest. I've, I've never read Morse or, or seen Morse, which I have to say I thought was a, a terrible failing when I started to write the first book. I thought, well, yeah, I'm writing a crime novel set in Oxford. It's not exactly the most original move, but I don't know anything about other crime novels. And I thought, well, I could go two ways. I could start to read up or I could remain completely ignorant. And if, <laughs> if I go the latter way maybe what I produce will be a little bit different, a little bit unusual. Of course, it could have all backfired. I could have written something almost exactly the same as other books and been done for plagiarism. But, I, I mean, no, no one's fingered me so far, so I think I got away with it. <laughs> That's interesting. So if, if these books didn't emerge from a passion of reading crime books, what sort of books are your favourites? What do you feed on? I tell you what, what drives my motivation as a, as a writer, which is character rather than action or plot. I don't know whether that makes me unusual or not, but I think the very best writing is writing in which the characters are really central to the power of the book. And I think action doesn't really work unless the reader is emotionally engaged with the characters involved in the, in the action, unless they really care what happens to those characters. So... In writing this novel, it was the same sort of process as writing other fiction that I've written for children, for instance, or literary novels, which I wrote at the beginning of my career, where it's all about, it's all about the character or the characters and putting them in, in situations and the relationships between them. So that's what really drives it. And the books that I read for my own enjoyment and enlightenment are, are books which similarly have character at the centre of them, and, and very often it's it's the sort of what you might call the classics, particularly the recent classics. So that that's what I get off on. 
although this is the second in the series, I would say you don't have to go back and read A Killing in November in order to really enjoy this book. Well, I'm very glad. I, I, I wanted two things to happen, I suppose. If you had read the first book, then I wanted the second book to be an extension of certain things that were in the first book, so the relationship between Ryan and Ray, for instance. But, you know, I, I felt very strongly that both books had to work as complete stories in themselves. They had to be self-contained in a narrative sense so that you, you didn't... Re it wasn't required that you knew about book one in order to read book two. With any series, I, I think, you know, the author is faced with the issue, how do they proceed? You can do a sort of just William and just keep him in the same moment forever and ever. Or you can attempt something sequential so that the books follow on from each other. Even if they are self-contained, it means there's an also, in addition, an overarching narrative arc. And so I, I've been trying to do that. So how do you manage all the plot twists and not sort of giving us too much and leaving us on hooks as to what's going to happen a few pages on? I get a fairly detailed plan and then I start writing and almost immediately deviate from that plan because it's not quite going <laughs> as I thought it might go. And again, it's a fiddling process of that doesn't work. Maybe if I, I try it the other way round, or maybe if the character does something slightly different in this situation. So I'm, I'm, it's trial and error all the time for me. I'm, I'm fumbling along. <laughs> but how do you get the ideas for the, the crimes and the different situations? It's partly daydreaming and it's, it's partly adapting things that I might remember. So, f for instance, with A Killing in November, I did have a friend who worked as a handyman at one of the Oxford colleges and he told me that one day he'd been accosted in a pub by a guy who said he was a photographer for a lad's magazine. And they said, he said, we, we, we like to photograph models in really unlikely settings, like we get into the British Library or the House of Commons, or, and we'd love to do an Oxford college. Any way you could just, you know, direct us uh, to the chapel, and we could, and he did. So I was thinking, well, that would be extraordinary because no one would know that lady was in there what would happen if she got killed that would be a quite a find the body of of an unknown model in a in a very unlikely setting so you're very interested in stories your friends tell you and you have your simon's little notebook that yes. comes out yes yes <laughs> i can show it to there you it here. Is. Here there it is. Is a real notebook. it's number it's number 47 can you believe it oh my goodness <laughs> so you're writing a lot of ideas as you go as you go on. I love trying to write things down. And so if I see something, I try to describe it in a notebook. And if I, if I overhear a conversation, I will try to describe it in my notebook. And um, so I do go around. I think this began rather mechanically. I, I, I remember as a kid watching um, Chekhov's The Seagull. There's a writer in that called Trigorin, and he has a notebook. And I wanted to be a writer, so I thought, blimey, I better get a notebook and start <laughs> writing things down in it. <laughs> and then I couldn't stop. <laughs> I mean, for many crime writers, particularly those who write a series, their principal character stays in their head when, even when they're not writing and that they can hear that character. But you've got two very different main characters. You've got Ray and Ryan, as we said. So who's, who's left talking to you? <laughs> 
Well, do you know, funnily enough, with me, it's very often the minor characters who talk to me. There's nearly always, in every book I write, a sort of character who just gate crashes, and he shouldn't or she shouldn't really be there. There's no, there's no place for them. They, I haven't written a scene for them, and they just sort of barge their way into a chapter, and then they won't, they won't leave. They're the sort of characters who I can't stop listening to. And very often it'll be a minor character like a vagrant or a child, someone like that. I just can't get rid of them. So, <laughs> so in the end, I stop trying. And usually, once I've put them in the book, then they, then they oh, shut up. Right. I get rid of That's them a... by writing them. <laughs> now, on to the slightly silly questions, but bear with yeah. me on this. The actually, okay. isn't silly. It's, it's vitally important. Can you tell me what your biscuit of choice is? What is powering your writing? <laughs> OK, I, I need to tell you something before I answer that question, which is, I, I damaged my sinuses a long time ago. I have very little sense of taste. So everything I say is likely to be foolish. But my biscuit of choice is custard creams. That's a, I have not had anyone select a custard cream before, <laughs> Simon. So you'll be the proud owner of all the custard creams in our variety box. Excellent. I know they're very bog standard, but I like that. They're cheap. They're sort of quick. Speed is very important to me with food. Are you someone who pulls them open and eats them each piece individually, or do you just consume them as a whole? I put it all in my mouth if I can and, uh, and swallow it. <laughs> well, just can't wait to hear people talking about your latest book because it's really a superb crime story. Simon Mason, whose latest book is The Broken Afternoon. Thank you so much. Thank you. For, thank you for having me. And now we need to go to David and hear what he's been reading. The book I'm currently reading is called The Light Seekers. I'm currently on chapter three of this book. The next book I'm going to read is called The Last Girl Today. It sounds very intriguing. And as I'm a crime author myself, I like taking ideas from these certain Books I read. My biscuit of choice would be probably a cracker, I think, for my eating during or even after reading the books. Okay, that's me. See you all later. Wow, David, thank you so much. So you're currently on chapter three of The Light Seekers and the next book you're going to read is called The Last Girl to Die. That sounds a bit serious. If you need a link to find out how you can contribute to the podcast, if you just look at the show notes, the information will be there. So now I'm just going to review two more books. Thank you for staying with me. You'll be on your way soon, but you do need to hear these books. The first one, The Forcing by Paul E. Hardesty. Here's the blurb. Frustrated and angry after years of denial and inaction, in a last-ditch attempt, to stave off disaster, a government of youth has taken power in North America and a policy of institutionalised ageism has been introduced. All those older than the prescribed edge are deemed responsible for the current state of the world and are to be relocated, their property and assets confiscated. David Ashworth, known by his friends and students as teacher, and his wife May find themselves among the thousands being moved to new accommodation in the abandoned southern deserts, thrown together with a wealthy industrialist and his wife, a high court lawyer, two recent immigrants to America and a hospital worker. Together they must come to terms with their new lives in a land rendered unrecognisable. As the terrible truth of their situation is revealed, lured by rumours of a tropical sanctuary where they can live in peace, they plan a perilous escape. 
but the world outside is more dangerous than they could ever have imagined. And for those who survive, nothing will ever be the same again. Well, let me do the first sentence. Sorry for all the paper noise. Do apologise. Let me do the first sentence. Chapter one. I rose early, an old habit, crept downstairs to make coffee, correct the exam papers I hadn't got to the night before. It was back when people still got up and made coffee and went to work, led what they tried to imagine were normal lives. I guess we were all doing our best to maintain the illusion of a past we couldn't quite bring ourselves to let go of. Now, I'm going to be quick because time's moving on, but this is both a dystopian and a thriller. So whether you like dystopian or whether you like thrillers, whether you like both, you need to read this book. It is outstanding. It's about relationships. It's about the climate. It's about what humans are like under pressure and what and who you can trust. Uh, the human race doesn't come out terribly well with this book. And this has to be made into a film immediately. It is exceptional. Very, very good. Please do read it. And the last book is, of course, The Last Day by Andrew Hunter Murray. This one has been out for a little while. I listened to it on an audiobook from the library and really enjoyed it. So let me do the blurb. 2059, the world has stopped turning. One half suffers an endless frozen night. The other, nothing but burning sun. Only in a slim twilight region can life survive. In an isolationist Britain, Ellen Hopper receives a letter. Sent by a dying man, it contains a powerful and dangerous secret, one that those in power will kill to conceal. And the blurb is... No, I've done the blurb. Philippa, come on, let's do the first sentence. Prologue, June, 2.30am and no signal yet. The American was waiting in his cramped little room, waiting for a pulse that would tell him London was calling. The whole building was boiling hot tonight. The air conditioners had broken down again. And here he was, the last one left at his station, fiddling with transmitters just to pass the time before the call came through. This is really good. I admit I had tried listening to it before and I couldn't get into it. That clearly shows I wasn't in the right zone because when I listened to it this time, I really enjoyed it. It was much more than just the last day, if that makes sense. There's, It's much more about the characters and, and this thriller element as well. I think you should read The Forcing and The Last Day. In fact, all of these books today, I think you you if you got all five of them, you would have a great selection of stories. But yeah, The Last Day, Andrew Hunter Murray, bravo, excellent. And before I go, I've got to say the biggest, hugest thank you to Claire, Debbie, Sue and David for calling in. That was just brilliant. So Claire was reading or just finished the one that got away and been really moved by that. Debbie was reading The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. That's amazing book. We did that a few years ago in book club. Um, excellent one. Sue is reading a few books like Rob the Week Before, including The Puppet Show. Welcome to the world of M.W. Craven, Sue. And David's reading The Light Seekers. Honestly, thanks all four of you. It's just brilliant. This is it. I am going. I'm leaving you on your way. I have got some great books to talk to you about next week. Some brilliant authors. Can't wait, can't wait. Just... I hope I hope you're all okay and just look after yourselves and I'll see you very soon. Take care now. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Quick Book Reviews podcast. That's enough books, said no one, ever. See you again soon. Have 
ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.